So the old rugged cross. So oh, before I start, I'm going to be really short, I promise. Okay, I've got like two scriptures, and I know you're thinking, what the heck, Trin? You have heaps of scriptures. Two scriptures, because I kind of feel like the, the, the hymn kind of speaks for itself. So, though he wrote nearly 300 songs in his day, George Bernard struggled to write his most famous hymn. And all the time, for, for a long time, he only had the tune. He didn't have the lyrics. He struggled and he couldn't get the lyrics down. And it wasn't until a certain spark happened that gave him the inspiration he needed to find the perfect words. Bernard was born in Youngstown, Ohio in 1873. His early days were spent as a childhood should be, completely carefree. However, those carefree days were cut short when his father was killed, leaving him the sole provider for his family. So he took up that mantle of providing for his family as a young boy, and he went to work in the coal mines. And deep in the dangerous mines was not how a childhood should be spent. But he did it anyway. And no matter how difficult the job became, he knew he had to keep doing it to support his family. Bernard always hoped that he would escape those dark mines, and after many years, he finally did. And he attributes this to three great things that happened in his life. First of all, he found a wife named Araminda. He got a job at the Salvation Army. And best of all, he became a Christian. And God was seemingly eager to bless this man who had selflessly given of his family, to his family and for others. And in the years to follow, Bernard became a minister and he began to write hymns. As I said, he wrote many as I He actually wrote over 300. And just about all of them have been lost to us except for this one. For some reason, the Holy Spirit felt that this song needed to continue. We actually only sing, sang a shortened version of it, so I just kind of want to read the lyrics to you. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I loved that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Oh, that old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. In the old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, such a wondrous beauty I see. For it was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it some day for a crown. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true, its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me some day to my home far away, where his glory forever I'll share. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it some day for a crown. The scripture that I want us to look at this morning is actually found in Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 56. And 
It's Jesus speaking, just so we know. I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against her mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Then he also said to the multitudes, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be a hot weather and there it is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? Now I know half of you are thinking, friend, you just read the wrong scripture. You are, I can tell, because... Kind of when I was putting this together, I'm like, yeah, it's not quite, it's going to be hard for them to see this. But if you hang with me, it will make sense and connect to the old rugged cross, I promise. So just give me like 10 minutes. So you can see in our world, we see crosses everywhere, right? Like there are crosses everywhere you look. We have, um, you know, ideally the cross is a symbol of the Christian faith and you can find jewelry with it. You can find clothing with it. You can find tattoos with it. You can find crosses on the top of churches. And you can find them at gravesides. And you can find them as headstones. And some of them are absolutely beautiful and very ornate. And they're just absolutely stunning. And I find that quite interesting. That in this day and age, you can find a cross made out of just about every single material possible. But there's a kind of an irony about that, because although the crosses were portrayed in many ways, and most of them are quite beautifully done, it was actually an instrument of execution, right? This was the primary purpose of the cross. It was used to put people to death, and especially and including Jesus. See, the cross pictured in the Bible is not a golden cross. It is a cross that was of suffering. It was a place of crucifixion. It was a, not a beautiful, glorious thing. It was a very rugged thing where a man died. And it was a terrible death that he died. You see, the Roman form of execution was, um, was the crucifixion. And what they would do is they would take a criminal and they would whip him and beat him. 39 stripes he would have to sustain because 40 was too many and we could kill them. 39 was enough to weaken him. And they would do it with strips of leather that had bits of metal and, and things like that into it so that it was not, it was not intended to be pleasant. Then for, for Jesus, they took it a step further. Not only did he get beaten the 39 times, they then decided that because he called himself the king of the Jews, that they were going to actually crown him. And so they twisted up a crown of thorns, and it wasn't like they just placed it on his head. They actually pushed it into his head so that it would not fall off. So this wasn't just a few sharp pricks. This was pierced into his head so that it did not move. They weren't content with that, and so what they did is they then decided to just beat on him, and they started ripping out chunks of his beard. The Bible actually talks about it. If you have never seen The Passion of the Christ, I highly recommend you see it. It is awful. It is ghastly. It will break your heart. But I suspect that some of us need to know what Jesus went through because that's how important he felt you were. So if you haven't seen it, I think you should. And if you have seen it, sometimes we need to remind ourselves about 
how much God valued you. And so then they take Jesus, and they weren't just content with that. Then they give him the cross beam to the cross, and they tell him he has to carry it, which they estimate was around 200 pounds, right? So he's probably just under 100 kgs. This thing was huge, was heavy. And he's already beaten, he's already weak, he's already lost a huge amount of blood. He's been up over 24 hours because they'd already kept him up when they were trying to pass judgment and had their whole fake court case. And so then he has to carry this cross. They say that it was about about 0.6 miles. So it wasn't that far, but because they paraded him through the town, the whole process took about three hours. We know that Jesus was actually at one point... Towards the end, he couldn't do it. He couldn't continue walking and carrying this cross. Because every time he fell, you know, they would kick him and punch him and then drag him back up. But they realized he couldn't do it, so they actually got this other guy, Simon. And and he actually ended up by carrying it the rest of the way. Interestingly enough, they don't talk about if the other criminals had the same treatment. I suspect not. But our understanding of the resurrection... And our understanding of Jesus' ultimate victory over that very death with life leads us to see the cross not as a thing of torture, not as a place of execution. And I think that's why we end up by making our crosses look a lot better than they are, because we actually see it as a symbol of resurrection. We see the cross as a symbol of forgiveness. We see the cross as a symbol of our salvation. And for some of us, there's a whole entire rebirth of ourselves and a recreation. So for us, even though the cross itself is actually an instrument of torture, for us it is an instrument of a great beauty and value. But I wonder sometimes if our frequent use of the symbol of the cross leads us to forget the, the impact that its meaning is supposed to have. Do we lose sight of the cross because of our very frequent use of it. One of the, when we first came to this church, we did communion every single week. And then we realized that people were taking communion not with the thoughtfulness behind it as we should, but just as some kind of ritual that we do on a Sunday. So that's why we stopped doing it every single week, because communion needs to be thoughtful. Communion needs to be intentional. And so therefore we moved it to once a month on purpose, because when we see things all the time, they kind of become common, and we never want communion to be common, and we don't want the cross to become common. So have you lost sight of the cross? See, this fear, this fear of losing sight of the cross, the true meaning of the cross, is actually what motivated George Bernard to write the Old Gregory Cross in 1913. According to the Christian History Institute, he was struggling with personal problems, and it was causing him a great deal of trouble and pain and anguish. And in his suffering, his mind turned again and again to crosses, the Christ's cross, anguish on the cross. Wait, well, I can't say that fast three times. This, he thought, was the heart of the gospel. The cross he pictured was not ornate or pretty or made of gold or of silver, but it was a rough, splintery thing, stained with gore. And in his journal, he writes this, I saw the Christ of the cross as if I were seeing John 3.16 leave the printed page, take form, and act out the meaning of redemption. See, he wanted to put that theme and those thoughts to music. And the History Institute writes that in a room in Albion, Michigan, Bernard sat down and wrote a tune. But the only words that would come to him were, I'll cherish the old rugged cross. And he struggled for weeks to find the words to the rest of the melody that he'd written. 
As a Methodist evangelist, Bernard was scheduled to preach a series of messages in New York, and he found himself focusing on the cross, the theme of the cross becoming ever more urgent to him. Back in Albion, he sat down and tried again to put together the words. And this time, after months, the lines just came. And he later shared, I sat down and immediately was able to rewrite the stanzas of the song without so much as one word failing to fall into place. I called my wife, took out my guitar, and sang the completed song to her. She was thrilled. And on June the 7th, 1913, according to his own account... George Bernard introduced the new hymn at a revival meeting he was conducting in Pokagon, Michigan. The old rugged cross soon became one of the top 10 most popular hymns of the 20th century. This hymn is actually my grandfather's favorite hymn. Um, and although, to be honest, I normally sing this hymn at funerals, and funerals of old people, not funerals of young people, but funerals of old people, I can picture people singing it with people, with other funeral attendees in each each chorus gets slower than the one before, and their wobbling voices lifted high to sing this old hymn, and it is an old hymn. But how can such a sweet little hymn have anything to do with the angry-sounding words that Jesus spoke in Luke? See, the images of this hymn doesn't quite connect with the challenging scripture that I read earlier today. But sometimes we have to deal with the challenging words that Jesus says to us. In verse 51, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five and one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now, there's nothing sweet in that passage, is there? This doesn't really sound like how Jesus does it. Like, Jesus doesn't, doesn't come to bring peace but division. That's, that's not quite what we've been taught. Turning households and family members against each other? How is it that Jesus, who we call the Prince of Peace, is saying that he's not coming to bring peace but that he's coming to bring division, to put us against one another? And while we've been looking at these hymns all this month, how can we talk about Jesus and how sweet and wonderful he is when he's making these troubling statements. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. You see, our temptation when we read words like that is to somehow try to find a way to soften them, right? To make them a bit more palatable, to explain them away so that Jesus doesn't sound like that, so that he sounds nicer than what he actually is. But in this case, I think that's exactly what Jesus means. He's warning against it. Do you think I came to make things easy is what Jesus is asking you? No, he didn't. He's actually come to make things more and more challenging. Well, that's, that's my paraphrase of that. I want you to listen to the verse in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. For everyone to whom much is given, from whom much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask more. In other words, we receive a lot. We've received a lot. We've received God's blessing. We've received God's love. We've received his unfailing grace. We've received limitless second chances. But you know what? God actually expects a lot from us too. And mostly what God expects, what Jesus expects, is that if we choose to follow Jesus, that we actually follow Jesus. It's both that simple of a request and that hard of a request. 
Because following Jesus means choosing one path and not the other. And we're very much a people who like to have our cake and eat it too. We want to take the path of Jesus. We want to follow what Jesus says. But we also want to make our own choices. We also want to choose our own way. We want to go the direction that we want to go in when it suits us, not always the direction that Jesus says. And Jesus says that when he comes, he will show us the way to go. And we have a choice where we can either say yes and follow or we can say no and not follow. Shane Rayner says, recently wrote a column responding to an article that he'd read about why teens don't attend church and it appeared in the magazine USA Today. The article, reporting on some study results, implied that teens don't go to church because they're too busy. They have too many other things to do. But Shane Rayner offered up a different idea, that unchurched teens see no significant difference between church kids and everyone else. That's the reason they don't attend, he says. And, he, and I've, I've kind of got this quote from him, from his article. The issue is bigger than you think. I run, over, I run into it over and over again. Put yourself in the teenager's shoes. If one of the reasons they mightn't go to church is to become a better person, what does it say to them when the church kids cuss and do the same things as all the other kids? Suppose you were thinking about joining a diet program where the participants never lost any weight, or a gym where no one showed any physical progress, or a karate school where no one ever got a black belt. You'd see it as a waste of time. A lot of kids see church as a waste of time for the exact same reason. Most teenagers aren't expecting church people to be perfect, but they do want some kind of assurance that church is going to make a difference in their lives, or they figure, why bother? And I think the same could be said for anybody. It's not just about teenagers, it's about adults. Why bother? If you're a person, if you're a Christian, if you're saying to people, I am a Christian, I follow Jesus, yet you are living a sinful life out loud, out in front, out intentionally sinful life, in front for everybody to see, can I ask you to stop telling people you're a Christian? You're making it so much harder for the rest of us to tell people about Jesus and to come and live this life. I know those are harsh words. That's why I'm going to keep the sermon short. But seriously... If you are not prepared to follow Jesus, then why are you here? You, you, you would have noticed this year, the theme of all of my messages is the same thing. Obedience is better than sacrifice. We need to obey the word of God. If you're not obeying the word of God, you need to assess why am I actually here? Why am I doing this? Why am I turning up to church on a Sunday? Because the whole point is you gave your life to Jesus. You accepted him. And when you did that, you actually signed up for this. You signed up to not go your own way. You signed up to do it how Jesus says, even if you don't understand, even if you don't like it, even if it's hard. Because otherwise, why bother? And I think that's exactly what Jesus wants to know too. Jesus is probably sitting there going, if you want to follow me, but you want to have following Jesus not impact your life, why are you doing it? Why? If following Jesus and you don't want to follow Jesus fully, I don't understand why you do it halfway. In fact, he has a scripture. He says, I would rather you were hot or cold because if you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of your mouth. He finds lukewarm worse than he finds coldness. You see, Jesus came to bring division because he asked us to make choices. He asked us to make decisions 
ones that actually really affect how we live. Now, I'm not talking about stuff that we struggle with. That's different. If you are actively trying to follow Jesus and you're struggling with some stuff, that's different to when you are actively engaging in sinful behavior with no thought about um, making changes. What difference has following Jesus made in your life? Choosing to follow Jesus Christ should not have as little impact as deciding what you're going to wear or what food you're going to eat. Following Jesus should have such a huge impact in your life that your life changes. See, being a Jesus follower has to have a tangible, real change, real impact on your life and on those around you. What is the point in following Jesus if no one can tell that you're doing it? What is the point in following Jesus if nothing about you, nothing about me, nothing about the way that I live my life has changed as a result? What's the point? See, Jesus actually didn't come to bring peace, but division. There's a poet, Marianne Williamson, and she writes this. When you ask God into your life, you think God is going to come into your psychic house and look around and see that you need a new floor or better furniture and that everything needs just a little cleaning. And so you go along for the first six months thinking how nice life is now that God is there. Then you look out the window one day and you see that there's a wrecking ball outside. It turns out that God actually thinks your whole foundation is shot and he's going to have to start over from scratch. See, being a Christ follower, we declare that we are ready to open up our lives to God, to be examined thoroughly by God, by his probing eyes, to rid our lives of sin and wrongdoing and injustice and failure to love God and our neighbor. We make a decision, we make a choice, and we chose this path. We sang about it today. We talked about being wholly surrendered. But are we really? Or do we just like the line in the song? Now, I'm sorry if when you signed up to become a Christian, no one told you how hard it would be. There was a series of time in the, the early 90s when it seemed like all the preachers were doing was telling you, come to Jesus and your life will be made better. And that is true, but they neglected to tell you how hard it is. Becoming a Christian and walking out the Christian life is the hardest thing you will ever do. It's harder than anything else because what it means is that you have to change. It means that you can't do the things that you want to do. It means that you do literally have to surrender. Every part of your life, every aspect of your life. Every decision that you make must be surrendered to God. When you decide about the job you're doing, it's got to be filtered through the cross. When you decide the person you're marrying, it has to be filtered through the cross. When you decide what you're going to do with your finances, it has to be filtered through the cross. When you decide you're going to move towns, you're going to go to a different church, all of those things, every single thing must be filtered through the cross because that's what you signed up for. So I'm really sorry if the people and the pastor you had at the time didn't tell you that. I'm telling you now, it has to be that way. And it is hard. But I want to tell you, it's really, really worth it. It is so worth it. Honestly, following Jesus is the best thing I ever did. I made the decision like 34 years ago to follow Jesus. I was 15 years old, best thing I ever did. Was it hard? Damn straight it was hard. It was really hard. It was difficult because I had to become a completely different person. The person who I was on the Friday when I left high school, and there's a whole lot of stuff in my children are here, so I'm not going to talk about that, um, because I don't want them to know some of this stuff I got up to before I knew Jesus. But the person I became on the Sunday and had to walk back into that high school on the Monday morning, I was a completely different person, and I knew I was, and I had a moment 
where somebody said something to me at the school, and I thought, I can either lie or I can actually begin this journey. And I went through a season there where I basically lost all the people who I used to hang out with because they didn't want to hang out with somebody who suddenly found Jesus, who wanted to be part of, part of that whole thing. So it was a lonely, it was a lonely two years before I managed to, to find other Christian friends. But it is so worth it. Has it been hard having to deal with feeling like, you know, I don't want to forgive this person and walking through that forgiveness? Yeah, it's hard. But I feel good about it now. Is it hard having to give up dreams that we had to come and when God called us to come to Pukekohe, to leave our family and come to Pukekohe? Yeah, that was hard. But it's been worth it. Has it been hard when Craig and I have, have wanted to yell and scream and stomp around and tell him to get out and I don't want to be married anymore? But we stayed married and we worked our way through it and we're stronger for it? Yeah, it was hard, but it's worth it. Walking with Jesus is worth it. But it's even more worth it when other people see it in your life. See, in this way, our hymn for today, The Old Rugged Cross, ties perfectly to this verse and brings home the message. See, George, George Bruno didn't want a pretty cross, a soft, delicate cross, because he didn't want to lose sight of what the cross signified. Jesus told, him, told us that we have to follow him, we have to pick up our cross. And it's not a postopedic cross. It's not a cross made out of polystyrene. It's a heavy cross. It's a rugged cross. There are splinters in wooden crosses. And we're supposed to take up that cross. And the cross symbolizes a difficult, life-sacrificing journey that Jesus ultimately made first, and we follow. The old rugged cross is a reminder to us that our, the faith that we claim is more than a tradition into which we are born, more than a gathering of friends once a week. The life we chose is one that sets us apart because we're going to be faithful to Jesus' teachings. But in the choosing, as Bernard penned in his tune, our life as in Christ is rewarding beyond our imagination. As we experience the love and grace of God that knows no bounds, we learn how to share that love and give life to others. So we cherish the old rugged cross. We make that choice. It's a symbol of peace, but it's also a symbol of division. It's a symbol of glory. It's also a symbol of humility. It's a symbol of the life that we have chosen in Christ Jesus. Can I just have the band up, please? I want you to think about a couple of the verses. In fact, I'd like you all to stand. I want us to be reflective. That old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true, its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away, where his glory forever I'll share. I want you just to close your eyes. The key line for George Bernard and for us is, so I'll cherish the old rugged cross. I'll cherish. It's an act of will. It's an intention. Do you cherish the old rugged cross? 
To cherish the cross means, like I said before, to filter your life through it. Make your life decisions based on the cross. Not on what's convenient, not on what's nice, not on what you'd like, but to filter it through the cross. Filter it through what he wants. And while we sing this hymn, that's a question for you to answer. It's between you and God. You know your life. You know how you're outworking your journey with God. So you know if you cherish that cross or if it's become a little bit familiar. So as we sing the song, just cherish. Make that decision.